This episode's guest is Alex Effer of Resilient Training and Rehabilitation. Alex earned his Bachelor's of Kinesiology from the University of Toronto and obtained a postgraduate certificate in exercise science for health and performance from Niagara College. He is also a certified exercise physiologist, strength and conditioning coach, and exos performance specialist. Alex continuously improves his education through courses and regular personal reading from both Canadian and international sources to enhance his knowledge in stress physiology, neurology, biomechanics, respiration, autonomics, psychology, and systems thinking. Alex has gained extensive clinical and practical experience treating and training a variety of clients from professional and amateur athletes, high-profile executives, older adults, individuals with certain medical conditions such as stroke, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, congenital heart disease, post-operative rehabilitation, and individuals with chronic and complex pain. Most recently, Alex has decided to build his own business under the name Resilient Training and Rehabilitation, a name that emphasizes Alex's unique approach to fitness, which is one that combines both aspects of normal fitness and rehabilitation principles to achieve long-lasting, pain-free results. Alex uses his comprehensive knowledge and passion in exercise science, autonomics, respiration, rehabilitation, and biomechanics to develop programs that promote injury prevention, sports performance, and rehabilitation true quality of movement. On this episode, Alex and I discuss Alex's background, the compression expansion model, where we go over narrow and wide archetypes, and the pelvic mechanics of both the archetypes. This is a great conversation with Alex, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Alex, thank you so much for making time, man. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do that... Uh, that FOMO that that podcast hosts do where they go, man, everything we spoke about even before we hit record was amazing. And all the listeners <laughs> go, don't say that. We didn't get a chance to hear that. But <laughs> what what we, we've already been speaking almost half an hour and it's 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 like it's like what a lot of people I get on the podcast is like, man, we've known each other in a previous life. I agree. I appreciate you for having me on. I know we're talking about philosophy, life, you know, certainty. No, it's you know what? Like that's for me, that's the best type of podcast to be on is, is just having a conversation with somebody, as you said, like somebody that I feel like I've known forever. Or, you know, I remember one of my first jobs in the strength conditioning uh, industry was a, I, so one of the, my boss was from England and he met me at a coffee shop. And so he, it was like kind of like an interview and, and he said, look, Alex, I'm going to tell you this. I only hire people, not based on their knowledge, because you can learn stuff, but I hire them if I can have a beer with that person, right? I hire only people I can have a beer with. And for me, that has always been something that I've lived by. And when I find those people, I'm just like, oh, it's it's so much easier. Like it's so much more relaxed and chill. And it's not like this professional necessarily or like interaction, do you know what I mean? And so- I, that, that's how I feel, man. I feel like we could have a beer together and talk all day, which is awesome. Do, do you know, this is just the way my sort of uh, cynical mind works. That'd be pretty, uh, it'd be pretty kind of messed up though. The person goes, oh, I'm sorry, dude, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I know. I know. Sorry, man. I don't, we'll, we'll have tea then. We'll have tea. We'll have tea. Exactly. Yeah. 
No, but like uh, just like the metaphor itself, yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I hundred percent. By the way, I'm not, I'm not a Rucker Black Hawk, but I'm just saying. Yep. Do you ever know if you say this? Well, I want to go for a drink, and the room goes quiet. And go, eh, be, uh, Tom's actually a recovering. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We'll go to dinner. Yeah. How about that? We'll go to dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I get you 100. I get the the, the premise. 100 agree with that. So listen, man. Um, really excited to get you on because, as someone who's a lifelong learner like yourself, I've really actually learned a lot from just listening to you on other podcasts and the information you put out on your social media platforms, particularly around the compression expansion model. Um, or as some people call it, give the full title, the compression expansion respiration gate model. Yeah. Uh, we'll, but we'll just call it compression expansion model just to simplify it. But I'm always very impressed with someone like yourself or a Connor Harris or, of course, Zach Couples, who, of course, studied under, under Bill Hartman. But I'm also very impressed with like someone like an Angus Bradley who, who's, who hasn't even gone to an intensive and just how well you guys have understood this model and have put it together in your own way and actually then put that information out to the masses. Because as I said to you before we came online, I really feel the way you structured your understanding of the compression expansion model and and then have put that information out there has really helped with my understanding of the model. Um, <clears throat> because, I, and, I, and I know a lot of people have said this, you know, like Bill is putting out amazing information for the last four or five years now at this stage. But a lot of it is very sort of scattered. And I suppose if you haven't done the intensive or worked under Bill for a while to give you a little more framework to be able to understand all of those bits of information, it, it can be difficult. But when I see like a person like you or, as I said, Connor or even Angus, and I think Zach Couples has really helped me too with his YouTube channel and his information, um, it's really helped my uh, understanding and development, uh, really helped my understanding of the model and really helped me and developing my understanding of the model so i want to get you on first of all do give us your background and then essentially with the compression expansion model like how did you first come across it and if you were to explain it to like a newbie how like how would you describe that model so first off just give us your background and then we'll get into that yeah so yeah first of all i appreciate you appreciate you saying that like for for me it's it's the way that I process information is trying to categorize things into into sequential steps and sometimes it you know, it just doesn't work that way, you know, and like, especially like Bill's stuff, it's, it's very like, you know, he goes on tangents a little bit sometimes where, you know, there isn't like a clear cut X equals Y or something like that, right? There's, there's a lot more components to it. But for me, I try to systemize it a little bit so that I can just process it myself and then use it um, um, just with clients and stuff like that. But a little bit about me, I... I'm a exercise physiologist, strength conditioning coach outside of Toronto, Canada. Um, it just a long winded answer. Like I, I, what I wanted to do initially was I wanted to become a physical therapist. I did thousands of clinical hours, like even outside of what my school needed to do. Unfortunately, I uh, interned under some physical therapist who just, I just didn't like I didn't appreciate or didn't like how they were applying things, how they're applying movement. Like I remember, and I said the story before, but it's, I had a client who was a 90 year old man recovering from rotator cuff in the other room. I had a professional baseball player who was also recovering from rotator cuff surgery and they were given the exact same protocol. <clears throat> and for me, I was too young. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't understand 
why that was wrong, but it just felt like it. And for me, it was just like, it felt so monotonous. Like you're seeing somebody every 15, 20 minutes. I just didn't enjoy that. I needed something a little more complex. And I'd grown up playing sports all my life, especially hockey. And my dream was to work in the NHL. Um, and then like the, the national hockey league. Um, I mean, it's, it's evolved a little bit since then, but you know, I wanted to find a different way to get there. And so in Canada, being an exercise physiologist allows you to work with people who are both in pain as well as strength conditioning, sports performance. And so I felt like that was a way to kind of allow me to work with everyone without limitations, like a personal trainer, you know, like there's like, can you work with pain? Can you not work with pain dilemma? For me, I wanted to remove that off the table. I was able to work with everybody. But what I did was because I can't put my hands on people, I had to focus on how could I recreate the same or similar effects as somebody who can do manual therapy. And at the time, you know, this is over 10 years ago, trainers were really thinking just about how do I increase muscle mass, strength, and stuff like that. And they didn't really understand anatomy and movement. And for me, I'm looking at these physical therapists, chiros, osteos, and I'm like, these people understand movement from a fundamental standpoint. They understand where the bones are, where the muscles attach. Um, you know, just even listen to podcasts. It's like, wow, their anatomy is unreal. I am nowhere near that. I know how to increase hypertrophy of the medial delt, but... I don't know what it does in terms of its action to the humerus or, you know, like, like how I could actually utilize it in movement. And so I literally, um, I was lucky enough to be working in a clinic where I had a bunch of osteos and physios, um, working there. So I was able to ask them, Hey, what kind of things did you guys read during school? And I would pick up every book. They let me textbooks and I would just read all these books that were allowing me to understand anatomy. <clears throat> the problem was, is that, you know, as, as you probably know, when you read anatomy textbooks, they're not functional. It's like, here's the uh, origin and insertion, but it's really like, as Bill says, like this dead guy anatomy where, you know, it doesn't apply to somebody who's standing and moving because open chain and closed chain movement of the muscles and how they interact are very, very different. And so, that was my issue. And then I was lucky enough when I came out of school, um, Eric Cressy was coming into town and um, I'd followed him a little bit, just read his stuff on Teen Nation a little bit and uh, heard him on a couple podcasts. And so I went with him and that was my first exposure to really understanding, you know, this stuff where it was like he was, he took PRI. I never even heard of PRI. And he was applying it to, uh, you know, basically the Sarman type model. He was very much Sarman influence. You could feel it. And so I remember reading all Sarman. So I was going in there with the Sarman based approach, like scapular upward rotation, you know, humorous internal, external rotation, all that stuff. But again, I didn't know how to apply it. I was just thinking, okay, well, a landmine press frees up the scap, whereas a bench press fixes the scap. Like that was my mindset. And then he's talking about breathing and expansion. Um, I don't think he used the word expansion, but he's talking about how there's other components to it than just focusing on the shoulder itself. 
And then it started evolving there where <clears throat> I started listening to uh, Mike Robertson's podcast. And that's where I uh, listened to a guy who honestly is, I would say is one of my biggest influences and no one's ever heard of him. His name is Mike Roncarati. Uh, he worked in professional basketball, like super smart guy. And he was a guy who took everything. And when I met him, he was my age um, where, you know, so he's about like five years older than me. <clears throat> and I met him and he took PRI. He, he uh, interned under Bill, interned under Mike, um, did FRC, DNS. And he was just applying all these things together in a training setting and understanding how to do exercises. I had taken PRI um, each of the primary uh, modules one month after the other. So it was like an intensive of three months of PRI. And at the end of each PRI packet, they give you like a hundred different exercises. And I'm like, how the fuck do I apply these things? You know, how do I apply this to normal training? I want to do a lunge. How do I apply this? And when I listened to Mike on Mike Robertson's podcast, I looked up when he was going to be in town because I knew he was, he was, um, he was working with Atlanta Hawks. And so I reached out to him on Facebook because there was really no Instagram then. And I just asked, hey, I really liked your podcast. I would love to, you know, buy you a coffee or whatever. And, and so we did that. We hit it off. We went to the gym the next day. We're just training. And it was it's very funny because that's how I also got exposed to Pat Davidson because what Mike was doing was the mass program before mass was even released. Because at the same time, um, or Bill, I think, or Mike introduced Pat to Mike Ron Karate. Mike Robertson introduced Pat to Mike Ron, or Mike Ron Karate to Pat, I think. And uh, anyway, so that's how I kind of got exposed with all of that. And then, so just looking at how he applies all these concepts and he was talking about Bill Hartman, but at the time, Bill was on, like, you could find nothing on Bill. He was on no podcast. Uh, the only way you could contact him was email, but at the time he never answered his email. So I think I emailed him like two or three times and never got back to me. Um, and then he started posting things on Instagram or uh, YouTube. And I was like, that's awesome. Um, but throughout my career, I've been trying to figure out how to apply these concepts like the DNS, the PRI, breathing, the gate. And it wasn't until I met Ron Karate, where I was finally understanding how to apply these things. Now, this is like, this is about eight, nine years ago when, when I met him. And then I took Bill's intensive, I think like three years, four years ago, four years ago. And even then was, you know, still a little bit mind blowing, but I, I, I kind of got it. It was like the first time that I was really understanding how I could apply you know, movement or gait and breathing to exercise selection and seeing it from a different perspective. And that really blew my mind. And like I said, and, you know, of course, COVID and pandemic was a terrible thing, but, you know, that period of time really helped me consolidate my thoughts and my model and my training system, because it gave me, I lost all my clients for months because of COVID and it gave me the time to sit down <clears throat> and just write out everything that I was thinking, my model, 
And that's when I finally understood how this stuff can kind of you know, come together. And luckily, like I said, I was working with osteos. And if you look at the PRI stuff and even the bill stuff, it's very osteopathic. Like they call it compression and decompression, whereas Bill calls it expansion compression. I think PRI, as we said, I think they're talking a little bit more expansion, decompression type stuff. <clears throat> but, you know, I started diving into gait and looking at things like a shin angle and how the foot works. And because, you know, the foot was never something that was really talked about, you know, very much. And, and then Bill started talking about it and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. So I dove deeper in myself, but I have a long winded answer in terms of where my education came from. But what I'm doing now because of COVID is I do work still one-on-one -on -one with clients in Toronto. Um, mostly um, they come to me in pain and then get them out of pain. Then we do like continuous like training and stuff like that. Mostly like uh, corporate or business people. <clears throat> but then I, ever since COVID, I put my model out. And I started posting on Instagram, um, started educating, consulting with trainers, physical therapists, which honestly is one of my favorite things to do is, is to, is to actually educate. And I learned myself so much through that, the questions that I get, it's able to allow me to start to conceptualize a lot of these complex concepts and trying to find a way to communicate it in a way that's more simple so that everybody can understand it. And that was one of the big things that I found with the PRI, with the bill, these really smart people was I had a hard time um, because they were, they were coming out of left field a little bit. I had a hard time of really trying to understand how to apply these things. And that's what I really tried to do. I was like, what are the principles of the FRCs, the DNS, the PRI, the bills, like what are the principles they are talking about? And I distilled it down to you know, gait and breathing and everything surrounds that. Every single movement of the body surrounds or is related to breathing and gait. There's more complexity to it, of course, but at the top of everything, you zoom out your 3000 foot view, that's what you're seeing. And so what I did was, you know, started my Evolve mentorship, which, you know, when I first started it in 2020, it was only four weeks. And I was still distilling my information of like everything that I had ever learned and what I do with my clients. That's what I tried to create was this sequential week by week, adding a different layer of here's the fundamental principles. This is what the thorax and pelvis, this is a way to look at the thorax and the pelvis from a gait and breathing perspective, then apply assessment to it. Okay, here's how you assess it. Then you talk about the feet and you talk about compensations, programming, exercise selection, and then put it together with a case study. Like I try to write it out in a way that my brain can just process it, which is just, you know, sequential. And I was lucky enough that my wife is a teacher. And so she was able to help as well, like um, be able to present it in a, in a very you know, succinct way. And um, like, kind of like how teachers will put together learning programs. And uh, yeah, so right now I run resilient training and rehabilitation and resilient education, which is just the education platform. And yeah, that's kind of like, I think I answered like all your questions in one. <laughs>
<laughs> but I'll go in deeper in in, in, in other things. No, that's uh, listen, man, absolutely perfect, <clears throat> absolutely perfect. So you gave you get, gave your background there, and you sort of touched on obviously your own education, um, which gives us great context into kind of how your education has evolved over the last number of years. Um, no phenomenal introduction <clears throat> there. So this com- compression expansion model, let's just say, right, Alex Efrenow is getting up in front of, like, imagine like it was like a university of human movement. And now this, this, this is the, you're the professor who teaches the module on the compression, the, the compression, compression expansion model. And here's your, you know, your, your freshmen and they're all sitting there and they've never heard about this model before. Like, you know what I mean? And that you just up there and you're going to present to them like, okay, here is an introduction into this model. What, what, what do you feel or how do you feel that it, the, that sort of presentation would, would, uh, would go. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough question. I remember you, like, I know you sent me the, the question beforehand. I've been really trying to figure out how to say it in the most simple way possible. And, you know, want to give credit where credit's due. Like I would say like, you know, the, the people that I used to work with the osteos, they kind of first introduced me into the idea of expansion, decompression, breathing and PRI and DNS, they all did as well. And then, you know, Bill Hartman with the expansion compression and kind of like bringing everything together for me and allowed me to kind of, you know, have my own thought process add added to there as well in terms of, you know, where I think, um, you know, where I've added a couple things, but in a very simple way, Expansion and compression really have to do with breathing. And so we inhale, everything externally rotates. When we exhale, everything internally rotates. Expansion really has to do with more of the inhaling. And so where it is, is we are expanding from the inside out. A lot of people focus on the outside in like muscles and bones. In this case here, we're talking about the pressure within our body. So we have these big lungs in, in our rib cage, inside our rib cage, that when we um, inhale, they expand, they push everything out. And when that happens, um, depending on where we can expand, that is where we will improve relative motion or this, this range of motion that we're going to get. Um, and I mentioned how sometimes we can't expand certain areas. Well, there's the compression, there's your muscle tightness, there's your tension. Um, this is where your body is internally rotating because compression is more associated with internal rotation. Expansion is more external rotation. And so again, if I can expand, for example, in between my shoulder blades, I'm going to improve external rotation. If I can expand in my chest wall, I'm going to improve internal rotation. And that has to do with the pump handle. And, you know, you can get really deep with that stuff, but really what it is, is expansion allows us to move. It gives us the range of motion, gives us degrees of freedom. And, you know, if you look at like uh, pneumatics and hydraulics, which essentially pneumatics is just um, how pressure systems works like brakes and hydraulics um, have to do more with like a pumping system, but has to do with more uh, volume, like more fluid. If you look at the body like that, it's the same thing. It's like where there is pressure, there is no volume. 
pressure and volume move away from each other. So if there's more pressure in one area, there's gonna be more volume in another. And where that volume goes is where movement is allowed to go. And so if I'm, so if I want to, again, improve internal rotation, I need to open up the front of the humerus essentially to allow for the humerus to be able to move into a direction, right? I mean, again, you can go a little bit deeper, but Expansion is allowing for movement to happen. It's external rotation. It's range of motion. It's relative motion. Compression is more tension, force production, um, internal rotation bias. There's more pressure that happens outside and within the body. Um, you know, you could say in different areas, like when we have more compression, it's going to be more um, exhalation. So there's going to be more intrathoracic pressure. Versus when you inhale, there's going to be more intrathoracic expansion, but more pressure within the intra-abdominal cavity, essentially. Yeah, so expansion is movement. Compression is uh, propulsion, force production. There's a limitation in movement. There's more orientation that's likely going to happen because of the force production. Um, but what we can do is we are we can use ranges of motion like internal and external rotation to determine what shape the rib cage is as it associates with expansion compression so if i've got this rib cage that's dented in a little bit like for example let's say i've got like uh, compression in between my shoulder blades i've got tension in between my shoulder blades you can think of that as a uh, posterior rib cage that is more flat. There's more tension. Everything's being shoved forward. Well, in order for expansion and relative motion to happen, I need some roundness in the rib cage because that allows the scapula to move. And so that's why I say like the back of the rib cage more dented in. So what I need to do is I need to pull it out. I think of like a car right? Like you get a dent in the car. What do they do? They pull the car or they, they, they pull a dent out. And what they can do is they can pull the dent out from external where they put that like suction thing and they pull it out or they can push it out from the inside. And so that's the pressure and the expansion within the rib cage where you're pushing it from the inside and then pulling it from the outside. Well, those are your muscles that can um, be more yielding, be more eccentric, be, you know, like allow for that rib cage to almost like be pulled back like a slingshot. So expansion, relative motion, compression, more orientation, less motion, but more force production. Both of them can happen at different areas of the rib cage as well. It's not just like, Hey, my whole body's expanded or my whole body's compressed. It's like, if I want to rotate, I need one part of my body to be more compressed as the other one expands. And then you can go a little bit deeper and say, well, it's not the entire side is compressed, not the entire side that's expanded. But remember, if I move towards expansion, I move towards volume, then the other side of the rib cage in this case has to be compressed. So if I want to turn to the left, I need my left chest to be compressed, to push the volume back into the back of my rib cage, 
And then that expands. So now I can move into that direction. So I hope that wasn't too complicated, but it's kind of like the, you know, crux of things, I would say. Could you, for, for the listeners, could you then get into discussing the two archetypes? Yeah. So there's the narrow and there's the wide infrasternal angle. And both of them have to do, I kind of mentioned a little bit of the shapes of the rib cage. So you've got uh, movement or mobility is essentially a changing in shape of the structure. Okay. So if I've want to, like I said, if I want to turn to the left, I need to compress, which is, you know, flattening the front of like the chest while I round my back. So that's changing in shape and allowing for motion to happen. Uh, the wide and narrow infrasternal angle is determining the shape of the rib cage and then through association, the pelvis. So if we look at the bottom of the pelvis, it creates a little bit of a triangle. The sit bones kind of meet together and they form the pubis. That's called your infrapubic angle. That will mirror the infrasternal angle during compensation. With breathing, normal non-compensatory breathing, they actually oppose each other. So when I inhale, my infrasternal angle widens. So the lower part of my rib cage opens, whereas the infrapubic angle actually closes because the pelvis opens up like a flower. Like the 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 anomalies, the uh, hip bones open up, whereas during compensation, both of those structures are actually um, in the same position, and that has to do with the rib cage. For example, in a wide infrasternal angle, it expands, it opens up, but internally, my axial skeleton is actually internally rotated. It's got more pressure. It's got more um, compression. And so what will happen is the pelvis will stay exhaled or IR'd, which is what happens when the pelvis open or closes, I should say. So the, the infrapubic angle widens, but what happens is my back starts to arch. And so my pelvis just dumps forward as a unit versus, like I said, this relative motion where if my pelvis goes forward, the anomalies should move in one direction as the sacrum or the tailbone should move in the opposite direction. We don't have that. Everything just gets locked and shoved forward. And so that's why we have this um, association between the infrasternal angle and the infrapubic angle. They're really, they're relatively similar, but the best way to explain this is <clears throat> if, so if I am internally, internally rotated, so everything is like, and it should be more exhaled. So if it's more exhaled, it makes sense that the rib cage should basically close. But in the case of the wide infrasternal angle, think about the uh, used car um, wavy tube man person, right? If you turn on the machine, it stands up and it starts to flap, flap around. But if you turn off the machine, it collapses against gravity. Well, if I have an exhaled axial skeleton, if I am more internally rotated biased, then that means I'm turning off the machine and everything is kind of going towards the ground. 
because IR is a force that goes down into the ground. So everything's collapsing. So in order for me to stand up against gravity, I need to reinflate myself. And so now what I do is all the muscles on the outside of my body start to pull everything up towards the sky to fight gravity. So now I've got this down force. I've got everything collapsing, but then I turn on the machine so everything can stand up against gravity. So that's why, you know, they'll say that it's a internal compression with a superficial inhalation strategy. So a wide infrasternal angle is, is somebody who is good at producing force, but is slow. So they can lift a lot of weight, but they can't get off the ground very fast. You can make some associations that they're more anaerobic, a lactic biased, but you get them to do any type of aerobic stuff. They suck. I mean, I could speak from experience, like I'm a wide infrasternal angle and I can lift weight, but if you get me to run around the block, I'm, I'm dying. Right. So they have tissues that are more concentric bias. Um, they're not really good at yielding, which basically means they're not a very good at accepting force. They're better at producing force. Um, you're going to see that they have more of a, um, internal rotation bias with that being said. Um, I haven't found many wide infrasternal angles that have a lot of internal rotation, but once you start to clear up some of the compensations, some of the tension, you start to see that being restored, but really what the archetypes are, are a predictability, um, method of viewing the body. It's like, I should see this but I don't. And I know that the rib cage is wider, which means that I'm going to have to exhale the outside of the rib, or the, exhale the superficial area, like the muscles and the rib cage. And I'm going to have to re-inhale the insides. So I need to bias more expansion with this person versus a narrow is the exact opposite. Their pelvis is more open like a flower so they're more externally rotated biased. And so inside they're more expanded. So they're very good at getting off the ground. Um, they're not, they're, they're better at like more aerobic stuff, but they're not very good at force production because force production requires a lot more IR, but they're more ER bias. They have a lot more range of motion than a wide would have for the most part. And <clears throat> their rib cage superficially now is more exhaled. It's more, compressed. So their outside muscles may be a little more tense. So my goal for them is to, you know, you don't want to, you can't really make them into a wide, but you kind of want to think like that where you're like, I want to make sure that I can internally rotate so I can compress internally, but then reinflate everything. I want to, um, turn on the machine. So inside their body, the, uh, wavy tube man is on, but outside the body, it's like you've turned off the switch. So they're collapsing against gravity a little bit, but their internal structures allow them to stand up. Their external structures are compensating to try to keep their feet on the ground. Otherwise they float away. You know, you're not actually going to float away, but you know what I mean? Like I need to be able to push into the ground to counteract the ground reaction forces. So, or push against gravity, gravity's pushing us down. So 
we have to push against it. And that's what's going to allow us this superficial. So they're going to be more biased towards external rotation, like I said. So you're going to have to do activities that give them more IR. With that being said, both of these archetypes are good. You know, they have their, their, their really good qualities in that the wide is good at internal rotation force production. A narrow is good at getting off the ground, speed, um, aerobic. You don't want to completely give them the opposite because then you're going to negate what they're really good at. But you want to expose them to the other side of the spectrum. For a wide, they've got a lot more internal rotation to better force production. I want to give them the ability to yield, to accept force, to absorb force, to externally rotate. But I don't want to just do that. I want to make sure that I'm still, you know, improving some of the qualities they're already good at. Just like a narrow, I don't want to bury them into the ground by loading them up excessively all the time, because I know if I increase load, I'm going to increase internal rotation because the mid stance phase of gait is the longest period of time during the gait cycle. And so if I increase load, I'm going to smush them into the ground. It's going to be harder to get off the ground or move weight. It's going to be slower and that could be taking away their speed their ability to get off the ground really quickly. But when they strike the ground, I wanna make sure they've got a lot of force into the ground, but quickly. Whereas a wide, I want them to be able to put force into the ground, but get off the ground faster. So I want, it's almost like for a wide, I want them to I want to, um, or sorry, for, for a wide, the way that I think about it is I want to maximize the tempo, whereas a narrow, I want to, um, I don't want to delay the concentric phase and making the concentric too long, but I want it to be like a, like a one-to-one type thing. So that way I'm able to expose them to low, but they're still doing it with some degree of speed, whereas a wide... I'm okay with slowing it down because it means that I'm getting more blood into the tissues to allow it to expand from the inside out. So for example, this would be a situation where I'd probably want to do maybe a little bit more volume with a wide, whereas a narrow, maybe I want to do a little bit less volume, a little bit more intensity, right? So it's like the rep range would be like 15 reps for a wide, a narrow would be like eight or six or something like that. So I can manipulate the intensity and the volume to get those qualities. So wide is more IR biased, good at producing force. Narrow is more ER biased, better at getting off the ground and more like a kangaroo versus the gorilla, like a wide, right? Who's like kind of stuck on the ground, but it's very important. Like I've, I've, I've had some sports organizations come through my mentorship. And one of the things that I've told them is way back when, when I was working at the local university and you have to analyze different sports and different players and positions and stuff like that. And like, these are their needs analysis. I always say like, include this 
element into that needs analysis. It's like, okay, you've got the sports needs analysis. Let's talk about the human needs analysis. Okay. We want to make sure that we are um, understanding that, Hey, this person is narrow. These are the range of motion. These are the objective measurements, the ranges of motion this person has. Are they going to match up with what the sports need with what the sport needs? For example, you got a soccer player, a midfielder, or football player, midfielder, right? They're on the ground or they are moving. They they travel the most throughout the entire out of all the positions. They they have the most mileage. Um, soccer requires a lot of cutting and turning and small motions and um, you know, traveling long distances. Like for me, that tells me, Hey, I need a lot of femoral internal rotation. I need a lot of, like, I need the ability to be able to, uh, pronate my foot, turn my, like internally rotate my tibia, internally rotate my femur. When you, if you look at the injuries that happen, you know, it kind of matches up a little bit. You got a little hip stuff, you got a lot of ACL stuff, ankle sprains. Like those are all associated with internal rotation the ability to internally rotate. And so for me, I'm thinking, okay, this person's a narrow, they don't have a lot of internal rotation. They've got a lot of external rotation. I need to give them the ability to internally rotate, but at a, in a certain way, like I don't need to load them up. So they're doing two, three rep maxes. That's not the kind of internal rotation that I want. I need the internal rotation that has some duration, some temporal component to it where, hey, maybe you're doing something like an isometric because you're delaying the internal rotation. You're distributing the internal rotation over a greater degree. So it goes throughout the body. Or maybe you're doing, um, maybe you are slowing down the concentric phase a little bit. So maybe you're doing like one second down, one second pause, but two to three seconds up. So they're able to produce force in the ground for longer and slower. So again, it's not this, um, you know, quick get off the ground going towards toe off, but you're focusing on that mid stance and that delaying of internal rotation that they would have a hard time with if they didn't have the femoral internal rotation. And so I always tell them, add the human element to the needs analysis. These archetypes are very important for understanding or give you some degree of predictability as to what they're biased at from a movement and even performance standpoint. Yeah, that's great stuff, man. Just, just for myself. So with, with the wides, they have an exhalation bias and then they have an inhalation strategy, and then the narrows the opposite. They have an inhalation bias with an <clears throat> exhalation strategy. Just one question, though, I have just cleared up. So, with regards to the action of the pelvic diaphragm, so if we just take a narrow there, because they're an inhalation bias, they would have a a a, a descended pelvic diaphragm. Yeah, but. One just one thing in my own head is, so that would be the tissues would be eccentrically yielded in that position, the pelvic floor, in the front of the pelvic floor. 
the front of the pelvic floor and the back is is compressed so you have so or concentrically orientated so no, no. it'll be eccentrically overcoming ah uh, okay because th- 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 this is the bit that i'm getting confused so because in my mind right just with a narrow we'll just take a narrow now because and obviously the 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 wide would be the opposite if we're just taking their primary bias and their first layers of compensation but we'll just say with a narrow inhalation bias descended pelvic diaphragm and I've seen I've seen this thing, so they're better at yielding. But in my mind, it's like if the floor was all now, and you can correct me in this now, and this is probably where my confusion is coming in. But my mind is like if the tissues were already eccentrically yielded, like I don't understand how you could be any better at yielding if you were already there. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like so, I I was getting confused on that, and then just another question too: Is the outlet then? Is it? Is the diameter of the outlet more or less? Less. Because I asked Bill this, and I'm very sure he said it, it, the diameter is more, though. And see, I, I've seen I've seen different things from different people because obviously the the sacrum is counter nutating, so it makes it look like the diameter is getting smaller. But then again, it goes back to this. Okay, but I've seen the thing where it says right the anterior pelvic floor is eccentric and the posterior is concentric and so, i was like so, yeah, so maybe you can clear this up for me if you're looking at it from an inlet standpoint like the upper part of the pelvis i would say that the diameter is widening but the outlet is definitely closing because you got the sit bones coming together you've got the tailbone coming towards the front right and so this is why i'm saying it's it's more eccentric overcoming because when you're inhaling everything goes down your, your, your guts go down into the pelvic floor. And so your pelvic floor muscles have to, you know, create a little bit more of a hammock, right? They've got to relax a little bit. And so the thing is though, is because the, uh, the posterior pelvic floor is being smushed by the sacrum, it's going to have some type of contraction element to it, but it's still descending. That's what allows us to get down into a squat more effectively. It's what makes narrows a little bit easier to get down to a squat versus a wide where you pull, if you pull the sit bones apart, it's almost like tensing those muscles. That's how they lift, right? So the outlet diameter actually gets wider, whereas the inlet diameter actually gets narrower. I wouldn't agree with that the outlet gets wider. I think that maybe the surface area could get wider because of those, like that hammocking action of the diaphragm. Maybe there's more movement or maybe there, there's more, like I said, like surface area. I wouldn't say the diameter. If we're looking at the pelvis, the diameter, it, there's no way that it gets bigger. Yeah. And I, just the other thing I get confused on too is that I hear people saying then that, the narrows are generally they're springier and they're more explosive or they're more elastic. But then I'm thinking then just in my mind, again, if they're more biased to have this descending pelvic floor, like uh, in my mind, like it's again, because it's already stretched, I don't understand how then that could be a recoil. Because you, so you ever heard of the thing like you got to lengthen before you contract so essentially they're already in a descended position. You'd be able to get off the ground really quickly. You need just like a trampoline, the pelvic floor to go up really quickly. If they're already descended, it's easier for them to 
create that ascension momentum force to lift it up versus a wide who's already ascended. How do they get off the ground? They're kind of already trying to get off the ground and push themselves up. What they need to be able to do is, you know, get on the ground, absorb the force so that they can lengthen before they contract. Do you know what I mean? They're already contracted. So they need to yeah. be at a lengthen. And so for a narrow, their issue is that they cannot produce enough internal rotation over distributed area to get off the ground effectively. What they will do is so external here. So here's the confusing part. External rotation is there's some degree of force absorption. So when you hit the ground, everything needs to yield. So there's that force absorption, but there's also a force production element to it as well. Whereas if you look at somebody who, when their feet just come off the ground, they've got this like plantar flexed pointy toes that the toes are like inverted pointing downwards. There's also that external rotation element as well. Whereas I land, I, I'm allowing the, I divide mid stance into two different phases, like an early mid stance where I'm getting more of a distribution of force over the entire foot so over like all the entire, like plantar fascia stuff like that. And then once I shift my center of gravity towards the balls of my toes, then that's also force, but it's more of a focal force to then allow for the Achilles tendon to spring. And when the Achilles tendon springs and that, and that wind last mechanism happens, what it does is it takes the heel, cranks it in to shove you over to your big toe. So then you can then propel off the ground. Okay. Yeah. So that ER is what is going to get this quick elastic whip like effect where I believe that there's like a stretch shortening cycle that happens within the pelvic floor to get you off the ground. Mm. So for, so if you think of like, you know, the best things for, for a narrow, it's like to bounce off something and to come up really quickly. If you squat down to a box and you bounce up and come up. Now, do you do it in a deep squat? You don't do it in a deep squat you constrain them to the area where the pelvis naturally will internally rotate and the pelvic floor will ascend. That's in and around that 90-ish degrees where I kind of stop them dead with a, with a box or something and then get them to come up really quickly, right? So, so, so just to be clear, narrows are poor at doing that though. That's what they're poor at. They suck at doing that. Yeah. 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 Because but, because they're because they're inhalation bias of the pelvic yeah. They don't get off the ground by going straight up. They get off the ground by rolling everything out. Yeah. Right? So if you think about it in between my shoulder in between my shoulders, everything in between my shoulders is internal rotation and putting force into the ground. That is the most effective way to get off the ground really quickly. Everything outside is external rotation. Well, I move towards external rotation. So I can get off the ground quickly by relying on the tendon elasticity standpoint, but it may not be the most effective way long-term because I'm relying on the elasticity of the tendon 
But what should be happening when the tendon is, you know, yielding and overcoming or contracting, expanding, whatever you want to call it, the muscle should maintain some type of isometric contraction to allow the force to go straight through it into the tendon and then travel back up like a wave-like effect. The problem is, is when you don't have that efficient internal rotation or that compression and lengthen um, that gradient or that back and forth, you then start to get these overuse situations where the tendon becomes inflamed or the, the, the muscle starts to become overworked because you don't have the efficiency of that isometric contraction of the muscle as the tendon is bouncy. Or if you don't have the ability, and tell our tendons like the easiest way to think about it or, or visualize it, you know, what a lot of these people have like these, these narrows is they've got a tibia that's externally rotated relative to the femur. So the femur is just staying in place and tibia is turning out. So the femur looks IR. But what that does is it pulls the patellar tendon in two different directions. And so now what happens is where the force goes is it goes into the distal part of the tendon of the patellar tendon. So now when I'm doing all these jumping, they're like, okay, look, I can get off the ground very quickly, but eventually something's going to fail and they call it jumper's knee. And that's because I don't have the ability to keep the force within my base of support, which is where internal rotation lies. So I've got to continually go outside of my base support and turn everything out because external rotation is outside of my shoulder width. So now I start to roll off the outside of my foot to get off. I can't do it through my big toe or my first med head, but I can do it through the outside because remember the fifth metatarsal has its own joint or its own um, axis of rotation, just like the med head. So I can start to get my internal rotation out here. It's not efficient. It's not going to last very long, but I can still get off the ground a lot faster than me being buried on the inside of my foot like a wide would be. Does that make sense? No, so it's like I'm bouncing yeah. off my tendons, basically. Yeah, like I, I think it, the more that I've come to understand the the compression expansion model, and particularly the gait aspect of the model, like the more I realize it's 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 really important to really grasp the archetypes and their bias and their strategies because that framework is just so important. So just to clear up my mind there. So again, with the narrow inhalation biased, we're saying that the um, the inlet opens, but we're saying we feel that the outlet, the diameter overall gets smaller and then it'd be vice versa then with inside the, with the, the pelvis, inside yeah, the pelvis. Yeah. but here is the confusing part. It's inside the pelvis. Uh, the outlet gets smaller. The inlet gets larger, larger. Yeah. But if you take a circumference of like, if you took like a, a measuring tape around where the femurs are, do you know what I mean? Like if you put it like on the greater trochanter, it's probably going to get wider because yeah, yeah, yeah. it externally rotates. Like that's where diameter, but within the pelvis, the outlet, the bottom of the pelvis, it's yeah, the small. So that okay. the yeah. hammock gets larger. And then it'd be opposite then for, for, for the wide where the, the inlet is closing. 
yes. the outlet is opening. Opening. And then the femurs are internally rotating. So the diameter, the circumference around the entire bottom of the pelvis will get large, well, smaller, smaller, smaller. Smaller, yeah, yeah. And so just, I think a big, a big piece of the puzzle there as well is just go back to that pelvic diaphragm too. So in an inhalation position, I'm just going to say this and then you can clear it up here. Yeah. So I'm a narrow inhalation biased pelvic diaphragm is descended. The anterior portion is eccentric. The posterior portion is concentric and that's flip flop then with the wide, but add that little extra piece on top. Then it's, you were saying, right. It's, it's with the, with the narrow there, it's eccentric yielding anterior and it's posterior concentric, but it's still, Yielding. Yielding. Yes. So and then so the wide would be the opposite of that then. Yeah. The wide would be concentric over anterior. Yeah. Anterior. And then it would be concentric yielding in the back. Because they are producing force, they are ascending the pelvic floor. Like it's going to ascend. It's not going to be like, I mean, it's easy to visualize theoretically if you just cut a line down the middle. It's like, hey, this is going down, this is going up. But it's mm. not as simple as that. Simple as that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is moving together. It's just one is moving faster than the other based on the forces of the ground. So, for example, like I'm, I'm doing like a like a hinge. I'm bending over. Well, if I didn't have this ascension or this concentric overcoming of the anterior pelvic floor, I would fall over because remember I moved towards external rotation. If it was yielding, I would fall forward. So I need something to block me, but then if it's blocking me in the front, I need somewhere to go. So I'm going to yield backwards and that's your posterior weight shift. I'm still Mm. internally rotating the pelvis and the femurs, but the, the sacrum is moving away from the sit bones now. So it's got to yield, but it's still putting force into the ground to be able to do that movement. And so yeah. what you're looking at is you're looking at a pelvis moving over top of the femur. Yeah, yeah. Right? Versus a femur moving relative to the pelvis. The pelvis, yeah, yeah. And of so, course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's the way that I view it. If you say like the front is eccentric, the back's concentric, it gets confusing. And it does, yeah. To be fair, I've made that mistake in the past. And then I looked at it from this way and I was like, okay, everything is just moving together. It's just one area is moving faster because of the forces applied on it. Like yeah. forces, if I'm bending over, the force is going in front of my body. It's not going behind me. So that means it's got to be more pressure in the front part of the pelvis versus the back. Whereas the opposite is true when I'm counter-nutated. Mm. Everything's being tucked underneath. So now that force, instead of being in the front of my body, starts to go backwards towards where the sacrum is. Yeah. Like, for example, you do a barbell back squat. It's like, where's the force? Line of force is more on the back side of my body. Mm-hmm. So there's more pressure there. So the front needs to, the front is going to be a little bit more relaxed. So yeah. Get a little bit more hip flexion. So yeah, again, and as I and as I alluded to just previously, like I really think a, a good understanding of the archetypes is so crucial with this model. Because again, like we've just spoken about, okay, with the with the pelvic diaphragm there, we not only have um orientations of the muscles there, so concentric or essentially orientated, but then we have 
the muscle action well as a yielding or overcoming which is like that extra layer on top and yeah. if you don't have that context then that's where you can get a little bit confused because i've gone through these like multiple stages with this model where like i get it like i get the action of the pelvic diaphragm and then i hear like this extra layer like oh now i don't think i understand that anymore yeah. <laughs> like i thought i had it but now i'm a little bit confused and like no doubt it'll probably come a little more circle and go if you just keep it kind of to like a little more simplistic yeah you could go very very deep on it but this this simpler version is enough to get you what you need to know in terms of a framework i would um, say like the best way to think of it is that you've got concentric and eccentric and we've been told that is the muscle action and it is not it is the position based on the joint so for example it's going to be if i've got a, a nominate that is internally rotating then the muscle is going to have a position of shortening in a certain area, but then the action of the muscle. So am I going backwards or am I moving forwards? Am I trying to propel or am I trying to accept force? Like, am I doing a heels elevated squat or am I doing a toes elevated squat? That then is the action of the tissue. So I've got the position, is it lengthened? Or is it more contracted? So is it more yielding, sorry, eccentric or concentric? Or, and then put another layer on, what is it doing? Am I trying to stand up from a bottom of the squat? Okay, well, that's overcoming some type of resistance. Or am I trying to emphasize the dissension? And so again, the terminology gets mixed up because people say, hey, maximize the eccentric part so maximize the lowering and that's just not accurate as to a description of what's actually happening the, like the tissues maybe they're lengthening are they lengthening or are they just yielding do you know what i mean like i'm going into yeah. the bottom of the squat so for sure some things have to be eccentric but not everything is eccentric at the bottom of the squat mm. some things are concentric but I need to get down there. So I need to minimize the amount of resistance to get there. I have to decelerate my mass and that's what yielding is. And then I have to, at the bottom, when I'm standing up for the bottom of the squat, I have to accelerate mass, right? And saying that it's more eccentric, more concentric gets confusing because I can tell you that going down requires external rotation but it also requires a hell of a lot of internal rotation to slow your body down. Otherwise, I would say, hey, drop down to squat. You've got no IR. You're falling right down to the bottom because everything is just pulling down and yielding. But what you need to do is you need to slow yourself down as you go down. So that requires internal rotation. And for me, that's why I call that early internal rotation because it's more of a femoral motion and you have some degree of external rotation, but you've also got internal rotation. You can call it superimposed if you want to, but you got this internal rotation that's slowing you down. And then when you're at the bottom going up it is overcoming concentric, that is more sacral movement. That's more hip extension. It's more of an extension moment. I've got to accelerate myself now. So that's where tissues need to start overcoming. They need to start contracting really hard, really fast, getting tense. Um, and so that's why, like, I mean, for me, like, 
looking at any kind of movement. Is it, is it, is it am I descending or am I ascending? And when you do that, it's that, that's what the pelvic floor is doing. As you're going down, yeah. it should be descending. As you're going up, it should be ascending. It should be yielding as I go down. It should be overcoming as I go up, right? We, we can make it so simple. Yeah, yeah. We try to make it more confusing to add layers, and that's totally understandable because the body's complex. But you got to understand the principles first. Like if, if someone were to come to me, okay, Alex, like this all makes sense, but like this is very confusing. How, where, like where do I start? Like, I would literally say, okay, you want to understand this stuff. You got to learn pelvic anatomy. What is sacral nutation? What is counter? Oh man. Sorry to interrupt you, but you have fucking so resonated with me here. This is my advice with this. This this is literally what I tell people to do. If they say, I really want to understand the compression expansion model. I'm like, here's what you do. I would do the PRI primary courses and see the pelvic one know your know your pelvic landmarks yeah because because you'll be lost in that when jen fucking uh when uh <laughs> when uh what's jen's second name again oh uh, i don't uh, even know where jen's second name Pollen, yeah. jen, jen Pollen, jen Pollen. yeah, yeah. i was like because you'll be lost when jen Pollen starts talking about the the actual mechanics of what's happening at the pelvis during gay but get that down right and when you get that down make sure then you study the respiratory system and understand boyle's law yeah. And now you, now you can go to Bill Harmon. Yeah. <laughs> that, exactly. Cuz that cuz that so that that was because I took the intensive in 2018 and I just I wasn't ready for that. My my mind was I was in the middle of my strength and conditioning master so I was really like I can actually remember where I was at them. I was heavy into like periodization and like yeah. bomb or not bomb but fucking uh, Bondar Chuck and Verkashansky like that yeah. was where I was at that time like yeah. and like I like I just went over to that the intensive and it was great and i did understand like the global sort of principles of the time but nowhere near to the depths as other people like yourself are currently with it now and of course we're still learning but when i went back and took the primary pri courses and then because i i hadn't a clue about gay not a fucking clue oh, like if same. you said to me yeah if you were like heel strike mid stance like even even forget about um early middle late and that's just talking about the, the the propulsion part i didn't even know just about heel strike mid stance and tough in normal yeah. gait that you'd read in a textbook like you know the yeah. stance is 62 percent and swings 38 percent, and then stance breaks up into this ratio i didn't know any of that stuff and then obviously with jen Pollen on pri and she's talking about the relationship between the sacroiliac and the, the iliums and then also sorry what really sparked me there or triggered me there was when you say nutation and counternutation because i was sitting down and people were like yes yeah, so you didn't go to nutation and counternutation i'm like what the fuck are you talking about i, I don't know what you mean by those yeah. words i've never heard them before i'm exactly. like oh it's just i'm like what's new chain and then like as i as i start to understand okay they're talking about the sacred mirror and as i watch other people present they start saying that the iliums were new taint encounter and i'm like oh no you fucking <laughs> fucked it up like why <laughs> yeah. didn't you just leave it at why didn't you just leave it at the sacred new taste counter days you 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 say that the iliums do it as well and whereas other people go no no they'll leave the iliums alone I'm just talking about mutation counter of sacrum so like you get all this like fucking bad things. So yeah, m my recommendation is like my recommendation is PRI primary courses and with the pelvis course, go get an anatomy book, know the pelvic anatomy. Like what's your sacral uh what's the thing of sacral base, sacral protrudence, yeah. No, it's uh, like the the word I can see protrometry or something like it called like the sacral it's just below the oh, sacral yes. base. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? But like Talk yeah, like yeah, yeah, like no, just like know your pelvic anatomy and then study gait. So it'd be like for the PRI courses, take those, and for the PRI pelvic course, 
study the pelvis, study the anatomy of it, no gait, then study the respiratory system, uh, boils a lot, know the inverse relationship between pressure and volume, and then you can go into the intensive or build stuff and have some type of framework to help you out there. But sorry, when you just said that, yeah, about nutation, connotation was like, oh, it's like it was like almost like trauma, just like yeah. relive there. <laughs> but you know what? It's like there's there's this like everyone's beating down the reductionist thought process, but like you need to. But what you have to have is a generalistic uh, view. And then you need to go reductionist to understand the different components of a system. So then you could put them together. Like for me, it was like, okay, um, I've got gait and I've got breathing. Those are the two fundamental things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read about breathing. So I, my, my favorite book on that is recognizing treating breathing disorders by Leon Chaitow read that 10 times. And then I was like, all right, I need to learn about gait. So you look at like James Earls, Thomas Mashad, like those guys, and you learn that and you're like, okay, great. Now I know that. Now let me go and like, let me look at what the pelvis is, like what it yeah, does. Yeah. And like, cause like, here's the thing for the, for the longest time, I was always focusing on the anominates, never focused on the sacrum. sacrum yeah. But if you actually look at it, how much can the anominates posteriorly rotate they've got so much ligaments like the hardest ligaments in your body that push against it there is not much movement going backwards and so what it is it is a sacrum that's moving forward and the anominates are staying where they are so now you've got this relative posterior rotation but it's not actually posterior rotating right i mean they can go forward because there's not as much restriction in the front but going backwards is going to be a lot of sacral stuff. So for me, it would be like, look at Diane Lee's pelvis. Look at Diane Lee's thorax. Like that that thorax book is awesome. You look at uh, Shirley Sarman's stuff about the rib cage, about the humerus. And then you start to integrate that stuff together. Back to gait and then training. Do you know what I mean? Like I would yeah. even recommend doing, learning about the anatomy before you do PRI. Because you do PRI... And the problem is, is you do PRI, you get so mind blown by it that that now is your generalistic framework. And it shouldn't be. It is, yeah. it is just one system to view the body. And no matter what anybody says to you, what everybody is talking about is osteopath. Like what Bill's talking about, what uh, like, like the Boyle's law, all that stuff is osteopathy. That's where it all started. So if you want to really learn about this stuff, learn osteopathy there's that book um mal lyman syndrome yeah who was he he was an osteopath that's osteopath, how they yeah, things. Yeah. zinc's compensatory Ooh. patterns that's what pri is talking about with the left aic stuff he's an osteopath um you look at carl lewitt you know he kind of started a lot of this breathing stuff who was he he was an osteo and physical therapist right like that's where all this stuff is stemming from and i remember diving deep into this stuff and all the osteopaths around me like yeah you're talking osteopathy it's all you're talking about and i can't tell what's you it? how what's that no go ahead go ahead go ahead no i was, I was, I was just gonna say i can't tell you how many times people reach out to me on instagram and be like what's your title again are you an osteopath yeah. and i was like no and uh, you know nobody knows what an exercise physiologist is and i'll be honest i just use the title i am not i don't like 
what I learned in school is not what I do. Like I, all the stuff that I'm doing, I learned outside and through practice and working with people and the different types of injuries and pain and movement limitations that I've worked with. Like that's where this stuff comes from. It's not from, from school, which sounds terrible to say, but really like school is a, is a way to open up your mind to, you know, explore things from like a, you know, broader standpoint. And then now it's like, all right, you need to, you are learning how to learn. That's what school is teaching you how to learn. Then you, need to, then, you need, then you need to go out and you need to learn yourself. And I would say, like I said, like PRI, Bill, those have been big influences. And honestly, I have a, a client of mine who is an engineer and talking with him, like he, he thinks I'm strange because I'm so interested in like the engineering component of things, the hydraulics, the pneumatics, like he, he's given me his books and just learning about physics. Like that is where I get so many ideas, physics, gate, breathing. You learn that stuff. You're ahead of the curve because nobody knows that stuff. Definitely big time. I just, uh, I had to pick up my anatomy book here. So that that fucking that anatomical structure, I can't, I still can't pronounce it, but I could could have spelled it for you that time. The sacral pro promontory. It's P R O M O N. Yeah, promontory. It's like yeah. it's on the anterior. It's on the anterior surface of the sacrum, just yeah. underneath. And the I always called the prominent sacral prominent or the uh, promontory. Promontory. Yeah, How do you pronounce yeah. it anyway? Yeah, it's yeah. on the anterior aspect of the sacrum. But no, the the funny thing you mentioned there about like when you're saying yeah, if you go into PRI and you don't have any anatomy, I can like, completely resonate with what you're saying, that you go in there, like, and they start saying, like, mediastinum, and you're like, what is that? But, like, if you had simply, but if you literally just pick up any anatomy physiology book, they'll talk about the cavity in the body that is just called the mediastinum. Like, because I remember, like, the first time I heard of the word mediastinum was not PRI, but it, it was, like, the post, the left posterior mediastinum. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, what is that? And then when I was just, when, when I started, like, reading my anatomy books, I was like, they were like, and here is the mediastinum. I'm like, oh, I've heard that word before from PRI and then then you look at all like anatomy physiology books they're like yeah the media sign is just a, a cavity in your thorax and it's just like <laughs> but like do you know what I mean so if you were like sitting there and like hey, everyone you'd be like, everyone knows media sign no anyone who's done physiology yeah. you just hear all these words like so but like, yeah the first time you, like, you, you hear it in the outlet like if you've never heard it before whereas if you studied the the again an, an anatomy book and you'd be like oh yeah this is the this is the inlet this is the outlet yeah it just makes it makes sense to you and uh, i have to say too the other the other two books that I always get recommended are newman's uh, kinesiology newman's, which, yeah. Is, which, which yeah which is a beast that is a phenomenal resource and uh you already mentioned though that the human locomotion one yeah oh yeah you mentioned the, you mentioned the author's name but that's the title of the book I've... they're the, they're the two that I always get mentioned so it's funny because i in my mentorship I always recommend picking up Thomas Bashad's book. He actually came out with another yeah. book that is just as good in my opinion. Really? Yeah. It's called Injury Free Running, I think it's called. Okay. It is awesome. So like all this stuff, like it talks about how when your foot strikes the ground, the muscles start to like almost have this like wave-like effect happen. Like this transfer of force goes through the body like a wave-like effect. And one of the, your most important muscles to absorb force when you strike the ground is your VL. And it's the air, it's the, one of the muscles that people, you know, it, it's, it's the culprit for a lot of things, you know, like where, you know, like loss of motion, but 
Yeah. Because that, that, that muscle is, you know, overcoming concentric. It's not in the position to be able to yield to not be able to accept yeah. force. And so that's another book, but I've talked with, I, I've spoken with Tom a lot because I always recommend his stuff and he always has, you know, he messaged me on Instagram and he's just like, Hey, like people keep on saying that you mentioned my book. I really appreciate it. And uh, so we, we've talked back and forth and like, he's even, right. he's, he's even like asked me questions about like, how to post and like, and stuff like that on Instagram, like, like reels and now he's, he's an awesome, awesome guy. And like, just the way that he breaks it down is exactly like, if you actually read his book, he talks about early, mid, late propulsion. Like when I picked yeah. up that book, I'm like, Bill must've read this book. He, oh, he's, he has read it. Yeah. But he, his, his, uh, he's got some really good videos on his YouTube channel too. Thomas. Yeah. He does. Yeah, yeah. He does. But like really when, when you like when I first took the intense and I'm like early late early mid late propulsion like I'd already studied gate and I was like I haven't really heard those terms and then I picked up um human locomotion mm. and I was like ah this is where he must be getting a lot of a lot of his like thought process on the different types of propulsion and stuff like that yeah. as the way he explains it but it's uh yeah I mean like I said, gate, you can extrapolate it to everything. Like people always ask me, like, how can you say that, you know, um, zero to 60 is more of this like toe off and, and, uh, you know, 60 to 120, like gate is only 30 degrees of hip flexion or whatever. It's like, look, you got to make associations when it comes to the movement of the joints, which if you look at Newman stuff, he's, what I like about Newman's book so much is he talks about functional anatomy. And how he talks about, you know, when you get to 60 degrees of, of hip flexion, that's when the anterior glute med starts to come online. And what he does is he says in one point of his book, I can't remember where he says it, but he says there's 30 degrees or there's 30 degrees of hip flexion and negative 15 degrees of uh, hip extension. So in total is 45 degrees of motion, let's say right? Within those 45 degrees of motion, you have to basically put all the motion of the closed of the open chain into the closed chain. And so he's like, you know, probably at fit or so then from there, I'm like, okay, well, probably 15 degrees of hip flexion is where mid stance starts, right? You go heel strike, which is 30 degrees, then you move back into about 15 degrees. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the anterior glute med comes online. That is where the max contact of the femur goes into the socket. So now what has to happen is if that contact, if the femur is not being distracted from the acetabulum and it's just punching into the, into the socket, so it's not being distracted from your like your anterior glute med and some of those muscles. That's when you're going to run into some problems. And so now you're like, okay, well, 15 to zero, zero being right underneath you. That's probably like your earlier mid stance. And then your late mid stance is from zero to probably negative 10. And then negative 15 is probably your toe off or negative 10 to negative 15. So you can, but making those associations and extrapolating, like that's where the magic comes from. And that's what I've tried to do with everything, like a toe touch, like in my mentorship, I break down the three different phases, you know, so that I can start to have like, give like a one, two, three, whereas one would be 
toe off, two would be mid stance, three would be heel strike. So you could start to like make these associations so that you can start to categorize exercises based on your assessment versus saying, you know, oh, they get to they get to mid shin for your for your toe touch. It's like, well, that's a two. You know, you get you you they can actually touch the floor and it looks clean. Well, that's a three. Great. But if they're a two, we know that we need to do activities that are in the three category, like the the deeper. We need to get more lumbar flexion, more re-counternutation stuff, right? So you can learn this stuff, but then the power of being able to extrapolate it and categorize assessments and exercises, that's where the real magic is. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm currently at is, is my understanding, I think, is that it's, it's, it's at a it's still evolving, no doubt about it. Let's. Uh, I'm not naive to think that I that I have a very well rounded understanding of of the model from sort of you know the principles and even you know even just fully understanding everything about the archetypes. But I feel that I'm at a sufficient enough level of understanding with that right now. Where I'm kind of at right now is I'm very fuzzy about exercise selections and how exactly to program with these archetypes but come here listen i actually i have to head off here i'm <laughs> yeah. fucking I'm, I'm well behind on schedule um but i've listen man i've tons more we'll, we'll have to book in it uh two or a part two because like i i have more stuff to talk about even with the squatting and hinge and stuff um yeah. um procession i want to kind of get just your thoughts on it maybe just to clarify my own thoughts mm-hmm. with the internal dynamics what else did i write that oh yeah another thing too like if someone had just said to me as well about this like sort of whole model too, particularly with gay, if someone had just said, oh, this is all about management of your center of mass. And I'd be like, oh, if someone had just fucking said that. Yeah. I remember when, 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 that, yeah. when, when that penny dropped, I was like, oh my God, like that. Cause, cause now I understand why people's feet are shaped so differently. And everyone's like, oh, cause you're early, you're late. Oh, you're twisted. You're more on that foot. That's why you have a bunny on the left, not on the right. And, that's why your shoes wear like this. You're you're like standing like because your central mass is shifted that way and also yeah. Just some of that. Uh, another thing there, Carol uh, Carol Levitt. I was thinking he's not an osteo. He was an MD. He's an MD. You're yeah, right. He was, neuro- he was a neurologist. Um, if you look up, but if you look up where what he studied. Oh he- no, he did. Yeah, yeah. I have his. I have his his books and all that. Like, um, yeah. He's an MD, he, right? He's he, a neurologist, but he 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 studied um, osteopathy. But- Dave, yeah, he's, taught he's got that. Gr- he's got that great book, Manipulative Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a phenomenal book. Yeah, no, he he was like a peer of um of Yanda's, mm-hmm. but he he was from yeah. he's from the Prague School. He's Czech. He lived like fucking until he was almost a hundred, or or he did live till he was a hundred. Um, yeah, but no, I, I remember. Yeah, nineteen. He died ninety eight. He was born nineteen sixteen. Died in two thousand fourteen. Prague, Czech. But no, yeah, he was, he was a so he was a neurologist. The the the, the center of mass thing that you said. I remember ta- I remember looking at a picture in the human locomotion book of the ankle rocker or sorry heel rocker ankle rocker toe rocker and I was like well what is the difference between these things and it's the shin and so I started looking at the shin as like a speedometer as to where the center of mass is where your shin's behind you center of mass is back your shin's over top like 90 degrees your center of mass is over top and then when the when the the shin is forward you got a positive shin angle. That's when the center of gravity is forward. And so you start looking at like that. You're like, okay, it makes sense why a lunge would be those different categories, but you're right. 
It's all about managing center of gravity. That's where range of motion starts to limit or get like you get more range of motion. Uh, one final thing too. Years ago, back when I was doing my internship at Altus, I'm good friends with with, with Connor Ryan. I don't know, do you know Connor Ryan? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I knew nothing about PRI, and I, I I can still just hear his voice saying this. It rings in my head every now and time, every now and again when I start getting deep into the com- com- compression expansion model and PRI and gait and respiration. But I remember before we even got into any PRI stuff, he just looked at me, and he didn't say these words, but the way he said the following. He is almost if he prefaced it with this. It was as if like he said, "Remember what I'm about to say." He didn't say that though, but yeah. it was like he, it was like he, he like the what he what he did say uh, did say to me. It sounded like this was the preface to it, like um, and he just goes to me, Robbie, this is nothing more than gate, and that was all he said. And yeah. I, I knew I knew nothing else. I didn't know anything about gate, and I remember at the time I was like, "What does that even mean?" Yeah, like I was lost, and he just goes, just, just you know, this is nothing more than gate. And then, like every time I go back to like, oh, it's all about propulsion, and yeah. like, it's gate. It's all about respiration and gate. It's all about you know what I mean? yeah. all these <laughs> position, you know, the early, middle, late. It's all about gate, and it's just like that's yeah. it. Like, so I don't like you just think about humans, right? Our three big things: first of all, survive; second of all, reproduce; and then the third thing, propel yourself. Yeah, that's it. It's just gate. It's gate again. It's and it's gate. Just, I just, and I just see Connor Ryan in my head going, just it just see it's all about gate. It's like it's like he's Yoda in, in like Star Wars. He's just like he comes out of the dark every now and again. It's all about gate. Yeah. It's like okay, I get it. Stop fucking haunting yeah. me. You know what's crazy though? It's like you would like I learned about gate by learning about all these complex things. Like you gotta do triplanar movement. You got like so you know, it's like all these triplanar things. And like, what the hell is that? And then you you look at gate and you're like, okay, they're just talking about gate, the different phases. And if I had just learned that early on in my career, it would have saved so much stress and trouble. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'll tell you one thing. It, it's it's made Gary Gray not seem as crazy. No, no. You know, has. years ago, people used to give him abuse. Like, they'd be like, oh, yeah. look at all this shit he's doing. You know, all this, like, oh, yeah. You know, in fairness, so, some of the movements where he'd be like, you know, he'd be like juggling the weights you know, over your head yeah. while you were doing it. Okay, I get that. But his premise was... Like he was one of the first guys who said, "Listen, when your foot's hitting the ground and gravity's involved, all that shit you read in your anatomy books is not Wrong. applicable at all." Like, yeah, yeah. I'm so pretty sure he's it. the one who talked about dead guy anatomy. I remember reading an article that he wrote way back when, and him saying, "Like, you know, close chains a different game. Like, it's not about the the uh, cadaver anatomy." You know, I think that's what he said, cadaver anatomy, and then it just evolved to dead guy thing. <laughs> well, he 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 had a course, and the course was actually called um, "When the Foot Hits the Ground." Something yeah, like it was the, you know, everything oh. changes when the foot hits the ground. It's funny too. Uh, like Bill uses that phrase too, uh, "dead guy anatomy," and I was like, "It is also dead girl anatomy too." Dead you girl, know, exactly. You, you know, women die as well. Like it's just, yeah. it's just, just in the in the politically in the politically correct world we live in now, like we got to make sure we're inclusive. You know what I mean? Exactly. It is dead girl. Girls die as well. Yeah, dead person anatomy. Yeah. Come here, listen. I um, I will contact you again. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I want to get because actually, I probably won't. I probably, I probably won't release this as a. I, I like to do like a part two and like merge them because I got so much more than I want to. Uh, 
I, I will release it, but what I'm saying is we can get like yeah. a second recording and then put it together or else I'll put out this is part one, this is part two. Absolutely. Because I've got so much more. Like I want to go through the squat and like what's going on with that pelvic diaphragm. And then there's just a center of gravity. And then, as I said, where I'm most fuzzy now is like, okay, it, it's the application of this. Like I, I feel I'm at a sufficient enough level of understanding, definitely not a total level, but mm-hmm. definitely a sufficient enough level where I can start applying it. But I'm still very fuzzy on like, I think a lot of that too comes down to assessment because I know like with the assessment, like that's another thing I said to Bill. I was like, Bill, like have you any videos where like you go through each one of these assessments? Yeah, yeah. How they're done and like, what, like, and then show us the red flags. Like now this is the common mistake people make with this. And like, and he did a little bit of a two with a leg raise was like, okay, yeah, but you have all the other tests as well. Like, no, you know? even, even the straight leg raise, he wasn't very clear on it. Like he wasn't, it was like very much around the bush. I mean, you, you have to like, pick out some things, but that's what I did. I did that with evolve on purpose. Cause I was like, I need to show it. And even just for myself, like break it down. It's like, these are the three different categories. I break them down into. And it's like, as well as here's all the compensation. And then here is a, you know, what I get people to do, I get people to take their hand and put the, put it underneath their lower back. And I just yeah. say, hey, tell me when your pelvis starts to roll in. Tell me when your pelvis starts to roll back into your hand. And you can see when it happens, but like, it's kind of like a confirmation for them as well. So that when you retest, they're like, oh yeah, it definitely happened later, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, but that, that, that's exactly why I did, I put that together because of because I needed to, to explain a little bit better as well. Great, man. Listen, um. Yeah. we'll leave it there uh i'll tell you what just as well just just where can people find out more about you because what i can even do is even if i have to like edit some of the little, last few minutes out because we were just kind of more having a conversation there again yeah. well and i can put this bit back in so just for today's show uh alex where can people find out more about you and your work yeah so currently i'm primarily on instagram at alex dot my last name effort e-f-f-e-r um, you can also find me on my website, resilientrehab.com. That's where I have all my programs, upper lower body program and my mentorship. So uh, yeah, those are the main places. Awesome stuff, man. Definitely. We're going to have to have a part two. And for everyone listening, yes. take care, be well, and stay strong. Thanks, man, Alex. All right. Mm-hmm.